0: This is the wine world, where Hein Johansen and Mochtenburgt booked interview top of the pops, wine people from all over the world.
1: So Hirsch Vineyards was founded by my father in uh, 1980. He purchased an old sheep ranch on the Sonoma Coast, about two and a half hours north of San Francisco. Uh, he bought the property in 1978. It's about 1,000 acres, which I think is about 400 hectares. So, really large property. But uh, at that time, nobody wanted to be on the Sonoma Coast, so the land was really cheap. And uh, my father really, you know, he he says that the first time he went to the ranch, he just fell in love with the land. And that's why he bought it. He was a Burgundy lover. He loved also um, the... 1970s California Pinot Noir from the Santa Cruz Mountains, which is actually where he was living at that time. But he didn't buy the land intending to plant a vineyard. Um, He actually bought it because he, he fell in love with the land. But after buying the property, he realized that the previous owners had really damaged it ecologically, and he needed to find some kind of activity that the land could could be used for, that could produce income, that could be used to restore the ecological health of the of the ranch. And um, a good friend of his, a drinking buddy of his actually, used to drink a lot of burgundy together, recommended that he plant Pinot. So he planted the first couple acres, um, like less than a hectare, in uh, 1980. And then a few years later, he gave up his other work and really became fascinated with farming, with viticulture. And for the next 20 years, he planted quite a few more vineyards at Hirsch and started selling fruit to some really special winemakers. So Kistler, William Selium, Lutteri, Siduri, Rocchioli, all of these amazing winemakers started to buy grapes from him and to make uh, Hirsch Vineyard designated wines under their own labels. So in this way, the vineyard became known. Um, But we weren't making our own wines for the first 20 years. Uh, It was only in 2002 that my father built a winery in order to be able to make his own estate wines so since 2002 we've been making uh growing grapes as well as making wine we still sell a little bit of fruit but most of what we grow we keep for the estate and um you know being where we're located very close to the ocean um it's about four kilometers from the ocean uh, 500 meters elevation and very close to the san andreas fault so the san andreas fault line runs in between hirsch and the ocean the geology of our vineyard is incredibly complex So very fragmented because it's young land, geologically speaking. So um, we have about 30 hectares planted. And uh, 60 farming parcels. So the average size of a farming parcel at Hirsch is half a hectare, which is tiny. And this is really necessitated by the complexity of the geology coming from the San Andreas Fault. Uh, And that's why my father wanted to build a winery. He's really a farmer. He's not a winemaker. His interest was never in winemaking. He built the winery to become a better farmer, to be able to taste all of these unique little parcels. And uh, take that information from making the wines and tasting the wines and to put it back back into the farming.
0: But how come he changed from uh, just producing grapes and going into winemaking?
1: So uh, it was really two main reasons. The first was that he really believes in the very traditional old world sense that real wine is made in the place where the grapes are grown. So we're in a very remote location. We're about one hour from the closest supermarket. Uh, It's really wild country. It's a difficult place to live, it's a difficult place to farm, but for my father it was very important that the wine be made right there. So I, in fact actually to build the winery we didn't have we only had 12 volt electricity growing up. And so my father built a 10 mile long power line to connect to the utility. I mean, that's what was required in order to build a winery there. So he really believed in this principle. And the other reason was because of the way that he farms. So all of these little parcels, these 60 parcels, um, each farmed individually by my father. He said, I wanna taste each of them individually. So the way we make wine is reflect, is a, a mirror of how we farm. So all those 60 parcels are each made in the winery into their, into their own little wine. Allowing us, and then we keep them separate all the way through the Elevage, which allows us to taste all of them, take that information and put it back into the farming and to help us understand the terroir better. So
0: how do you make the wine? Uh,
1: the vinification? Yeah. So the the each parcel is considered as if it was its own vineyard. The uh, decision of when to pick is unique for each parcel. Uh, the fruit is brought into the winery. We pick at night when it's cold um, to protect the integrity of the berries we are quite extreme in our sorting so we sort the fruit very carefully in the winery then the the grapes are in sometimes they are whole, left as whole bunches sometimes they are destemmed on average we use around 30 to 40% whole bunch but it depends on the vintage so for example in 2017 we used hardly any whole bunch but 2016 it's about 40% uh, so the fruit is put <clears throat> all of the wines are fermented in open-top stainless steel fermentation tanks. We do a relatively few days of cold soaking, so three to four days of not allowing the fermentation to start using cooling. Sometimes it can be longer. The fermentation area at Hirsch is... Open on all sides, so if it's very cold outside, sometimes the fermentation can take longer. So sometimes we have seven or eight-day cold soak by accident. Then the fermentation is allowed to start naturally. Um, We are not adding any yeast, and uh, we do pretty... Regular extraction, but quite careful. So depending on the parcel, we'll do some combination of pump overs and punch downs. When the fermentation is finished at the appropriate time, the wines are pressed. Everything's pressed in a basket press. Sometimes we combine the free run with the press wine. Usually we combine them, sometimes not. Uh, Then the wines are barreled down. Mostly older oak, so about 30% new oak for the Pinot Noirs. Uh, A mixture of French and Austrian Coopers. And that's kind of it. So the wines that go through Mallow, naturally, and then the is the between 12 and sometimes 18 months, depends on the wine. Yeah.
0: Do you age them in bo- uh, bottle as well before you release them? So
1: the vintage that we are starting to release uh, now is 2017, so a few years in bottle but not not super long time. We do keep a library, so every wine we've ever made, we have a older vintages of, So, but um, the, yeah, current release is three years old.
0: What's the size of your library? How, how much do you put, uh, put away for...
1: So it depends on the vintage and the wine, but uh, actually the library is getting kind of big, so we've been selling a bit. People love to buy the wines with age. I think we're, now we're about 600 cases.
0: Per vintage or total?
1: Total in the library, but... Um, So our first estate vintage was 2002. And at the beginning, we weren't making very much wine and we were a young winery, old vineyard, but young winery. So we couldn't afford to keep very much library wine. So really the library, but we still have a few bottles of everything, right? Um, the, really, the library started, starts in '09. We, we started to put more away. I used to save the same amount of wine every vintage, but it's foolish. I mean, there's certain vintages that are more age-worthy and certain vintages that are not. So I've modified how we, how we choose what to library.
0: Have you been there from the beginning?
1: No, I started working for my father in 2008. So I started out doing just the sales and marketing. And then in 2014, took over running the winery, but also helping a lot with the vineyard. My father had an accident in 2014 and he wasn't able to work for a couple of years. So, for a couple of years, I was managing both businesses, both activities, with the help of many amazing colleagues. Um, my father was not well for a long time, and our team was really amazing and really stepped up and helped. We have had the same vineyard manager for 30 years, averado Robledo. He came to Hirsch in 1989 and he's never left and he's amazing.
0: How much do you sell and to whom?
1: Yeah, so we sell grapes uh, to Litteri, uh, Fela, a small producer named Kasugi, I'm not sure if his wines are available here, and also to Ultramarine for sparkling wine. Uh, in total, so of the 30 hectares, Uh, One and a half is Chardonnay. We keep all the Chardonnay for the estate because it's so tiny. And of the Pinot, we probably keep about 20 to 22 hectares is what we keep. But this is... Grown in the last few years. So, for many, for about 20 years, we were selling grapes to William Sellium. Uh, we took that fruit back uh, after 2015. So, we had a jump in our production. What was great about that was it was all old vines. So, we got an opportunity to work with some of our best old vine fruit that we had been selling. The total production right now is about 90,000 bottles. All of it is Hirsch. So, it's, uh, you know, biodynamic, family owned estate estate wines only so it's a it's a it's quite a lot of wine now that we're making it's a, it's grown a bit but uh, that's also given us the ability to make uh, some investments in in the winery and also in the in the farm so you know we have about 400 hectares and only 30 hectares are planted uh, most of it is wildland and really we look at the winery and the grape production as a way to uh, of course to make wines that we love and that we feel express the terroir, but ultimately to produce income that can be used for this original purpose of my father's, which is to take care of the land. So we are um, uh, using the biodynamic philosophy, a biodynamic framework to manage the 400 hectares. Of course, you know, so since 2014, all of the vineyards are being farmed biodynamically. We have orchards, we have gardens, all of it's biodynamic. But I would say, and, and that's of course super important, but even more important is how the biodynamics, uh, the philosophy, the spirit of it is giving us a way to think about the whole property and how we can take care of it, how we can you know bring real ecological health, to, to the ranch. So that's been really exciting. So, um, yeah, so about 90,000 bottles to come back to your original question. And um, uh, one third to one half of that is our wine San Andreas Fault. This is a wine that's really, for my father, it's the most important wine that we make. It's the Hirsch Hirsch is what he calls San Andreas. So uh, as I mentioned, there's 60 parcels, each of which is made into its own wine in the cellar. And no uh, one of those parcels is, is more than, you know, about 300 cases worth of wine. Um, so really micro winemaking, micro-farming, micro, micro winemaking. making. But then we have an opportunity with the San Andreas to blend many of those parcels together to make a wine that is showing you all of the Hirsch Vineyard. So all of those complex geologies and microclimates and exposures to bring them together into one wine and really show people Hirsch. So about 30 of the 60 parcels go into San Andreas. And if you were to rank the vineyards sort of using a Grand Cru, Premier Cru, Village level, the San Andreas is about 40% from our Grand Cru parcels and 60% from the Premier Cru parcels.
0: What about the other cuvées? In Norway, at least there's East Ridge, West Ridge, Block 8.
1: Yeah. So those three wines that you just mentioned are from small parcels within the bigger vineyard that are really have their own unique terroir. So it's um, maybe helpful to think about Hirsch as a village in Burgundy. So if you look at, you know, Chambol Musigny, the village has its own Chambol identity, but you can go into bonemar or Muzigny and and then you say, okay, Bonmar has a character that is Shambomuzini, but it also has this really strong Bonmar character. And that's sort of, for us, the way we think about Eastridge, Westridge, Block 8. Uh, we have a new wine called Ration Ridge that is also like this. So small, unique sections of the vineyard that we think are interesting enough to be bottled on their own.
0: So basically, the philosophy is if you think they can have their own identity, you're, it's worth bottling them yeah. by themselves.
1: Yeah, uh, we also make a reserve Pinot Noir, which I think is uh, absolutely one of our best wines. This is a bit, here we go, we diverge from the Burgundian model, um, because the reserve is like San Andreas, it has fruit from all over the vineyard, but it's only Grand Cru, so it's a blend of our Grand Cru parcels in the reserve. So if you love San Andreas, um The reserve is going to be a similar character, but with more concentration, more complexity, more uh, age-worthiness. And uh, the winemaking is the same. So the additional concentration in reserve is because it's from 100% Grand Cru parcels. So that's a wine that is for us, you know, amongst our very top wines.
0: Is the winemaking the same all across the cuvées, or do you do anything different? So
1: we make wine block by block. Really, we're trying to say, okay, of the with these 60 parcels, which vinification choices, which elevage choices are appropriate for this block? So we don't make every block the same. I know some people like to say that or, or do that they, they make every wine the same, every vineyard the same so that all you taste is terroir. I think that's a little bit crazy because different vineyards need different things. And our responsibility is to find the techniques, both in the farming and in the winemaking, that will allow the terroir to be the most transparent. So all that being said, the range of winemaking choices at Hirsch is pretty narrow. So... In theory, the answer to your question is yes. The wines are pretty much all made the same, but there are we we really do care for each parcel as if it was its own wine. So some we might do zero whole bunch and some we might do fifty percent whole bunch. I have to say, you know when you taste, for example, Westridge, which is so delicate and light in body, and then you taste Eastridge, which is much more powerful and tannic. You know, they're they're really completely different wines. They're for different drinkers. They're for different occasions, different meals. I have to think, what is the parameter for ripeness for Block 8? And I have to have a different parameter for ripeness for Westridge because they really are different vineyards. And if I were to try to conflate the two vineyards, I wouldn't be doing them any service.
0: Who decides when to pick and what to do?
1: So our our winemaker for the wines that are currently available in Norway is uh, Anthony Filiberti. He uh, joined Hirsch in 2016 Vintage. So he made 2016, 2017, and 2018 for us amazing wines. But unfortunately, he left after the 2018 harvest. So we took a little bit of time as a family to decide what we wanted to do. All the wines were barreled down, and it was a good time to, to just about the next steps for the winemaking and uh, to be honest I decided to take it over myself I'm not a winemaker so I hired a consultant to to help to advise me I have a pretty clear idea I should say we as a family as a winery have a pretty clear idea about the style of wine we want to make but we really needed help in regards to process you know so um, we have a whole new team in the winery new assistant winemaker a new enologist started with us last year in the spring and uh, together with our consultant you know we're working together to I mean we we did the 2019 harvest together so that would be my first vintage and um, we tried to be very modest (laughs) in our goals our goal was to make good wine and same style as in the past so as we are learning and then once I become a bit more comfortable, there are, of course, we made some modifications uh, in our processes, and, but really tried to keep the techniques the same in 2019. And once we feel a bit more comfortable, once I feel a bit more comfortable, then we can start to make some changes. But there's no intention to make any dramatic change in the wines. I think becoming better farmers, better winemakers, it is incremental, and um, also the making of wine is incremental. You know, it's the pr- a wine is the product of a thousand small decisions made throughout the growing season, throughout the winemaking process. Of course, you can make one big dramatic change to your techniques and make a big difference in the wines, but I don't think that one big decision w- is, is really going to be the final determinant in the wines. It's all the little decisions. And to this, I would say my father's belief that Our job is to get up every day, go to work and pay attention. It's no more complicated than that, but it's also not simple, right? So that's our goal is to incrementally become better farmers, better understanders of the terroir and to incrementally become better winemakers.
0: And what's the market been like for you guys since you started making wine in 2002? So that was new. How... Was it easy to sell it from the beginning?
1: I think it's been uh, interesting to see how the California Pinot Noir market has evolved. When we started we were so small and so it was really as we grew the production that you you have to learn more about the marketing and the sales, and we started to sell wine at export as well, we sell a lot of wine all around the world. But I would say that it's it's the sales are really good, they're really positive, but. You know, there's a lot of California Pinot Noir. So I think we have to always be really present and attentive. And it's really important to us as well. And it always has been, even when the wines were very small production, when we weren't making a lot. It's always been extremely important to my father that we come and talk to the people who are drinking the wine and provide that direct connection to the vineyard. Um, And so that's very important to us to this day. So I travel quite a bit to even with the winemaking, this, to talk to people, to talk to you, and to talk to the people that I'll see during this trips. So
0: Back in the beginning of the farm, it, there wasn't that much famous, at least uh, American Pinot, and certainly not from California. But and basically the ones that were famous were all buying fruit from you guys. Uh, but now it's at, at least tenfold the, the at amount of... Yeah, wine. and you're relatively premium price-wise. So how was... Uh, Getting into starting sales in 2008, that couldn't have been the easiest year to start selling?
1: Well, as a friend in finance told me at the time, you learn more in a down market than you do in an up market. So I think that was true. It was really, well, 2008 was, it was a difficult environment in which to start selling, But it was also a very difficult vintage for us at Hirsch because we lost the entire crop because of smoke damage. There were forest fires um, in that year. They were in the summertime, which is the worst time for the grapes to have fire damage, to have smoke, smoke damage. So, you know, obviously I was not selling 2008s. In 2008s, I was selling 2006 vintage. But, um, you know, we knew that we were going to lose the vintage. And so that was also that was also very stressful for us, you know, knowing that, we weren't going to have an 08 uh, but i'd say you know when i started with my father we we were we had been quite small production and the rapid growth in the first few years that i was with the company and as you mentioned of course it was the beginning of the of of the recession so i had to learn how to grow a distribution network i was really lucky that there were a number of people that were doing my job but at a much higher level and we were very generous with their advice and their time and really helped me figure out how to build a distribution network. And then also when we started, well, we, we were doing some export already, but when we started to grow the export business, we had a lot of friends, particularly winemakers in Europe that were helping us, introducing us to their importers. So while it is a very competitive business, especially now because there's so many brands, not just Pinot Noir, but there's so many wineries. It's so easy to start a wine, a wine brand, which I think is good and also has some concerns around it. But people are so generous with their time and their contacts and their advice. So we've been really lucky.
0: Do you still have this uh, sort of uh, mentality of cooperation in California that was famous in the 70s and the 80s?
1: I think we do. I mean, it's interesting. Like, we're starting a partnership this year with Occidental Winery, um, the new winery from Steve Kissler and his daughter Catherine. You know, we have so much respect for them as a family, and they're a father-daughter team. We're a father-daughter team. And, of course, Steve Kissler bought grapes from my father for, I mean, close to 20 years uh, 21 years, I think, 22, and um, so we have this really wonderful history, and, you know, we decided this year in California to do a partnership between our two wineries, uh, do some events together, share customers, um, send people to their tasting rooms, send them to send people to ours, and, you know, you have to say, okay, so what's the benefit? Like, are you going to sell more? Is like, going to make money from this? It's really more about having the opportunity to be with our peers and it's interesting for us too and it is feeding the soul you know so uh, I would say also like we're a member of all of our vintner associations and it's wonderful to partner with people like Flowers we're working with the winemaker at Flowers who's also a woman Chantal she's amazing and we're doing an auction lot together for our local local vintners association to raise money. So we will blend Flowers Pinot Noir and Hirsch Pinot Noir. Seems crazy, right? And make like a special barrel that they can auction off and raise money for charity. So I think, yeah, I think we do do a lot of work together. We need each other, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. But I will say something about the true Sonoma coast. I mean, people don't go out there to the wilderness there to farm because they want to be part of clubs. So I think it's a bit hard for all of us on the West Sonoma Coast, on the True Sonoma Coast. We we do have our Vintners Association, and I think we're doing amazing things as a group. But it's a lot of strong personalities. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's but we're doing good work together, you know. Because even if everybody's very independent, I think we know we we need each other.
0: It takes a sort of independent set of mind to go out there and
1: yeah. You know, my father, when he moved there, so he bought the property in 78, he and my mother divorced in 83 maybe, 84, and uh, he moved there full time, and he was living there alone and farming, and nobody cared what he was doing. I mean, now if you go with him to a restaurant, the sommeliers are like, oh my God, David Hirsch, and you know, he's like a celebrity in the wine world, but when he was first there, I mean, he sold the fruit to Kendall Jackson for bulk wine, you know, and... that was it wasn't until 94 you know so 10 years in the wilderness living alone working six days a week in the vineyard and now it's a bit more we have a bit more comforts like as I mentioned we have regular power now but when I was a kid I mean you couldn't run a blender you couldn't run we had 12 volt electricity couldn't run a blow dryer and it was we heated the house with a wood stove and I have a strong memory of being a child and my father chopping wood and accidentally like chopping. It was, you know, of course, very terrifying as a child, chopped his finger. And anyways, but, you know, the fact that he lived out in the wilderness and worked so hard and nobody cared what he was doing, but he cared and he was so interested in what he was doing. I mean, it's I could never have done it, what he did. So I think it's yeah, you have to be independent minded. You have to be stubborn. You can't be afraid of hard work and you have to believe in what you're doing. Even when other people people told him, You're crazy. You're planting too close to the ocean. It's too cold. You won't get your grapes ripe. But now, of course, it's everybody wants to plant there. So and and he made so many mistakes. He'll be the first one to tell you. But he kept persisting. So he has a high tolerance for complexity, which is good because Hirsch, the it's complex. <laughs>
0: 60 parcels that's complexity
1: you know if I didn't if I had not seen the soil maps and if I didn't know myself from my work there I would have thought my father just did it because he's a workaholic and he needed some crazy project but actually it's really necessary you know because the the soils change from one meter to the next it's it's wild
0: was it done when uh, you sold your grapes as well?
1: That it was in these small parcels? Yeah. So it's interesting. If you if you look at the old plantings on a map, um, I will show you the map, but we will describe it for the listeners since they can't see it. So um, the old vineyards, he was not aware deeply yet of the complexity of the soils. So when he planted these old vineyards, he planted them in basically strips on... Any place he could find flat land, or, or at least a slope that was plantable. Because of the 400 hectares, you know, most of it is extremely steep and not possible to farm. Um, and so he basically laid out the blocks wherever he could plant grapes and wherever a tractor could turn around. So they're really re- corresponding. The old blocks correspond very closely to the topography and aspect. But over the 20 years farming those old blocks, he realized, okay... I'm farming on top of the San Andreas Fault. I need to get a lot more granular from the geologic point of view. So the the, the vineyards, the, the, the last stage of plantings that he did um, was 2002, 2003. He planted another seven, eight hectares. It's uh, vineyards that when you look at them on the map, they look like a jigsaw puzzle. He mapped these sites 10 meters by 10 meters, dug soil pits, uh, and mapped the whole thing using GPS to based on the soil and the soil structure. Working with geologists and GPS experts and this sort of thing, and then planted on that basis. So those vineyards are have a more complex layout, more challenging layout from from, uh, but but they're corresponding more closely to the soil types. And my father says that the first twenty years were like being in kindergarten, and then the planting of the two thousand two. Uh, vines was like his thesis to graduate from kindergarten <laughs> so I guess we're in first grade <laughs> so, yeah, thanks it's a little intimidating yeah. we have a ways to go well
0: you know burgundy has been around for a thousand years or so yeah. so
1: yeah we've we're the second oldest vineyard in our region and we've only been there for 40.
0: but that is relatively old vines American standards.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. We have a lot of vines that have disease. Uh, we have some phylloxera um, on the East Ridge and leaf roll virus on the West Ridge. It, because of the disease, I think in some ways the vines, of course, my only experience is Hirsch. So this is just a intellectual idea this is not something I can say from experience we have no experience farming 60 year old vines for example right our oldest vines are 40 years old but the disease seems because so we have 30 year old diseased vines and 30 year old healthy vines and what I would say with the diseased vines is they're so low vigor but they do get ripe but at quite lower alcohols and um, in the case of the eastridge you know the yields are so low The wine is quite concentrated, but the alcohol is still very moderate because of the phylloxera. So my thought is that the disease has prematurely aged those vines in the sense that while they're 30 years old, they act a bit older because the other 30-year-old vines that are exceptional, Block 8, has no disease and it acts has a lot of vigor, a lot of energy, uh, produces riper wines, maybe a better way to say it is we don't feel that blockade is ripe until we're not picking it based on sugar, but you don't, you don't see the phenolic maturity until there's a bit more sugar in the grapes. So you would have a bit more alcohol in the wine, thirteen five compared with Westridge at like 12 or 12 and a half. So I, I guess what I'm saying is that the healthy 30-year-old vines still seem a bit middle-aged to us, but the diseased vines are giving us, I think, some of that benefit of much older vines. It's going to be really interesting to see how Block Eight is in ten years, twenty years. So I'm excited.
0: You plan on uh, replanting the uh, the Fluxra?
1: Yes. The question is how soon. I think it's soon.
0: It's costly, yeah.
1: The replanting is costly. It's it's actually replanting a vineyard is not as expensive as developing a new vineyard. But the problem is you lose the production
0: for like three years or so. Depends on
1: how you replant. If you want to wait a couple years, let the land be fallow. If you want to let the rootstock grow before you graft, I mean, it could be five, six, seven years. It really depends on how you do it. If The quickest would be three to four years to get a crop, but um, it really depends. Oh, so we actually took out about a hectare and a half of the phylloxerated vines after 2015. This was a vineyard that we were selling to William an amazing vineyard, but it just really, really took a nosedive. Um, so, so that portion of block, of, uh, excuse me, of Eastridge, is being replanted right now. And I don't know about the rest of the Eastridge. I mean, my father and I talk about it a couple times a year. We'll see.
0: I guess they'll tell you. At some point, they oh, won't I produce. Won't
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, um, I think, you know, the Eastridge produces quite a tannic wine, and it needs fruit to balance the tannin. So, you know, Westridge is very light. I mean, it has beautiful aromatics, it's it's ripe, it doesn't have green notes or anything like that. I mean, it gets ripe, but it's very light-bodied, but it's not very tannic. Eastridge is quite tannic, and, and so as the vines become more stressed by phylloxera, like we saw during the drought years, the fruit is diminished, but the tannin stays the same. So then the wine becomes a bit austere, not so balanced, not so pleasant to drink. We've seen it come back a bit in 2017. I think 2018 will be, will be a con- continuing that positive trend. And I think that's due to two factors. The one is the biodynamics and the second is the end of the drought it has really helped Eastridge kind of bounce back a bit. But that, that really is the indication, you know, can it still get ripe enough to balance the tannins and to produce a delicious wine? And when it can't, then we have to replant.
0: Are you sure that it won't just mature into a delicious wine? You know, like it could be a Nuit Saint-Georges or Pomar style wine. And just like 10 years later, it's beautiful.
1: Ah, uh, well, you've tasted the 2016 Eastridge. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think?
0: I like it a lot. It's, it's the one I bought yeah. <laughs> for it to, to, to put in my cellar, actually.
1: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, what I will say is sometimes our wines will get a bit, they'll put on some weight as they get older they'll start off lean and then they'll get more fruity some of the wines some years i'm not sure if the 16 eastridge will do that i mean i think i think the 16 eastridge is delicious it it really also depends on your palate you know it's it it is a wine that is a bit you know austere and structured so it depends on your tolerance for that american pinot noir as a whole i think we're a little bit afraid of tannin in america i mean that's a bigger topic and I should keep my own counsel on that one. But I think Pinot Noir has to have tannin. If you were to ask my father, what is the characteristic of Hirsch? He's not going to say, oh, dried cherries and sassafras and blah, blah, blah. He's not going to give you tasting notes. He's going to say tannin. I mean, our site naturally produces wines with quite a lot of tannin. And there's lots of of ways to get rid of that in your wines. Like if you want to produce a low tannin Pinot Noir. But we think first it's part of the terroir secondly it's part of making good Pinot Noir but I would say overall the Pinot Noir industry has responded to some aspect of the American palate which is a bit more afraid of tannin it's changing though I mean there's more appetite in in amongst American consumers for more structured Pinot uh, more balanced Pinot so so maybe I just need to sell all the Eastridge in in Norway
0: <laughs> perhaps <laughs> yeah But well, you never know that but it seems like your wines can age, because I had a William Seliam uh, 96. Oh. And that was beautiful.
1: One of the best wines ever made from the vineyard. Yeah,
0: but it, at least it shows that American uh, or California Pinot Noir, or at least your your vineyard can uh, produce wines that can age. And
1: for that, we need the tannin. Yeah,
0: yeah, I would think so. But
1: yeah, I. you know, when we started to make wine in 'o two, we were making riper wines. My father has always, from the beginning been adamant that we shouldn't sulfur too much we shouldn't filter no fining uh, natural fermentation and this of course is long before the natural wine movement but he had really kind of traditional ideas about this which I'm really glad about but I will say that he 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 did pick later you know pick he did pick riper in the first few years Uh, when I started working for my father in 08 I had just moved to California from New York and I had been drinking all these amazing Burgundies and I have to say I didn't like our wines. I thought they were too ripe (laughs) and too big. Even though they were, like I said, they were never like these uh, laboratory wines that you find in California. But they were big and, um, you know, 14% alcohol and so on.
0: Much has happened in Burgundy since then as well. 09 was just after and then 15, 16, 17, 18. 16 is lighter, but still.
1: It has been interesting to see that Burgundy is producing bigger wines. Yeah, that has been interesting. But yeah, when I started with my father, I just we were we would argue. Of course I knew nothing and I must have been so annoying to him because I was like, we should do this, we should do that and I, I didn't know what I was talking about at all. But uh, what actually was uh, interesting in 08 it was besides the smoky summer. It was very hot and I was working harvest as a sort of grunt for our winemaker as a kind of way to get started in the company and to learn before I would start selling, and um, I don't know why exactly, but the field sampling basically fell apart in 2008. You know, we sample every block, we check the sugar, we check the acid, and so on and so forth, and uh, then you you know you taste and you look at the vineyard and you make picking decisions, but. Um, what we thought we were picking at, the wines actually ended up being a lot riper. There's a lot of things that can affect, like can cause that. So it was actually an extremely ripe vintage and it was great because it was like a wake-up call for my father. And it allowed me in 09 to convince him that, hey, let's try picking some things a bit earlier. And I have to say a lot of this was under the influence of Raj, or Parr, And uh, also Ross Cobb, who was not our winemaker at the time, but became our winemaker the next year. Um, but I was... I had him on speed dial during the 09 harvest saying, Oh, and that was the other thing in 09. I took over the field sampling under the direction of our winemaker at the time. But I would call Ross and say, Okay, I'm tasting this. Like, what do you think? And blah, blah, blah. Of course, I was not making the picking decisions, but I was advocating, you know. And Ross was, I always remember he said to me, You know, you have to pick Pinot Noir when you almost feel like you're picking too early. You know, you have to be on that edge. And, um, so in 09, that was really the vintage where we started to transition to making a little bit more balanced wines, if you will. So in regards to the aging, you know, the 09s are still so fresh and so young. It was also a great vintage, but it's difficult to say because the older wines, the riper wines, they're not so fresh anymore, and they're not that old. They're not so fresh as the 96 William Sellium, right? So it I think for me to really know how our estate wines are going to age, we need to see from 2009 on. But I think some of the vintages, like 2015, 2012, 14 and 16, a little bit, like really good potential to age. Other vintages are better for drinking young, but also can age, you know, but not as long. But that's based purely on my you know, tasting the wine and saying, okay, there's a lot of acid, there's a lot of tannin, there's fruit concentration, this wine should age.
0: So experience, basically.
1: Well, we have to see, right? Yeah. So, yeah.
0: But do you think when, because 17 is about to be released, I think, uh, do you think uh, people should generally drink their 17s first of the same wine and then as, and save the 16s?
1: Yes, yes. I think 17 is a remarkably open and expressive vintage, more so than 16 was at this time. 17 wines, the 2017 wines are also showing a lot of complexity young. The the fruit is very beautiful, very pretty fruit, but there's also this amazing, depending on the wine, but amazing savory characteristics. So for example, the 2017 Reserve has almost like a delicate licorice and earthiness mixed in with the fruit. And um, the 17 San Andreas has like dried herbs and dried flowers together with this really pretty red fruit. The palate of the 17s is a bit more delicate than 16s, and um, so I think, be, you know, the, the 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 lighter body, they won't hold the primary for as long. Whereas sixteen 2016 wines. They're a little bit higher acid and a little bit more fruit concentration. So I think that the, the fruit is going to persist longer in the 16s. I was drinking 2016 San Andreas yesterday, and it's so different from 2017. I mean, the vintages are really, really different, but they're both totally charming, but in completely different ways. But I think 16s will age longer than 17s because of that fruit concentration.
0: How do they age? Do you think they're going to be like sort of we, we uh, think from Burgundy where they go into this mushroomy character and sort of when you have a little bit of fruit left and you have the mushrooms and yeah. that's... you think they age similar?
1: Yes. I mean, I think the question with all wines is how are the tannins evolving together with the fruit? So I was born in 1979. I've had a lot of 79 Bordeaux. The really hard, difficult, not very delicious vintage <laughs> um, tannic wines... Better, let's say, they were better five to ten years ago. I had one recently and um, for a birthday party, and the fruit is basically going away, but the tannins are still really hard. Meanwhile, 1979 Napa Valley Cabernet, which I've also been able to drink uh, on account of it being my birth year and friends being generous, um, is the opposite. The tannins have evolved beautifully. The fruit is still fresh, And yet you have these secondary aromatics, but also still some of the fresh primary. I mean, to me, this is the dream, both for a wine to age and for a human (laughs) to age. I hope I age like the 79 Robert Mondavi Reserve. Uh, Good friend as a member of the Mondavi family, and she's been kind enough to borrow some of these bottles from her father's cellar. So amazing wine, if you can get it. Um, Not crazy expensive, actually, if you can find it. So yeah, I mean, I think the question is, which vintages, like 2012 is really tannic, has good fruit concentration, but really quite tannic. And so maybe the tannins won't resolve before the fruit is gone. But then I think a vintage like 16 or 2014, the fruit and the tannin seem really well balanced. So for me, it's not so much a question of how long will they age, but when will they be at that beautiful intersection of structure and fruit? And certainly they age faster than Burgundy, which I think is a good thing because we're not going to live forever. I mean, on a pride level as winemakers, of course, we want to say our wines will age for 50 years, but I don't think it's so important. I think more important is can they age long enough to give us some of that pleasure that we get from older wines? And, and ultimately, I think the purpose of aging Pinot Noir is that, you know, a little bit of that primary fruit parts and you can see the terroir underneath. So we have to make wines that can age at least, you know, to show more transparency to sight. Pinot Noir that's purely just a fruity beverage is so boring, you know. Why pay Pinot Noir prices for something that's pure fruit? You can drink many other less expensive red wines for this same purpose.